And Father, as we now come to your word, once again we come remembering, Lord, that your word is profitable for reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish your work today. We remember that you promised that your word does not return void. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us, give us understanding and give us conviction. Give us a deeper love for Christ that we would seek to glorify him in all that we do and that we would become more and more like him, that he would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 6. We'll be continuing our study in John chapter 6. We started it, I believe it was the second Sunday of December. So we've been in John chapter 6 for quite a while, but there is so much in this chapter. This is one of those chapters that is just filled with theology, filled with theological truths that are just vital to the Christian faith. And so there is no rush to get through them. But as we've been going through John chapter 6, it's given me a lot of time to think about the way that I approach evangelism now compared to how I viewed or approached evangelism and preaching as well, uh, even 10 years ago. Uh, This is one of the chapters in Scripture that challenged me and that forced me to change my entire approach, really, both to preaching and to evangelizing. Uh, One of the strategies that I used to use when I would evangelize with people was to challenge people to consider all of the the things and all all the people that they trust, all the things that we trust and and just kind of take for granted. Now, I don't want to freak anybody out even a little bit since our country is, you know, uh, having this coronavirus spreading, but hear me out for one second. Think about the things and the people that you trust on a daily basis, despite the fact that you know nothing about those people that you're putting your trust in. You know, you go to a restaurant and you order food. You trust that nobody in the back sneezed on your food, right? You go to the mechanic and you trust that he puts the right part in your car, that he doesn't uh, put the wrong part in so that more troubles will arise down the road. Uh, You trust your doctor to give you the right diagnosis, and not only to give you the right diagnosis, but to give you the right prescription. Uh, The list just goes on and on and on. The people whom you don't even know, you don't know the first thing about, and you do it every day, you you put trust in them. Now, why don't you trust in Jesus? That was kind of the approach that I took before. That was was a very easy way to to, to evangelize, because it just sounds so easy, right? You know, you trust all these other things and these other people. Why don't you just trust Jesus? It sounds, on the surface, so easy, and yet this chapter has shown us that it's not so easy. In fact, 20,000 people witnessed a spectacular miracle performed by Jesus and didn't believe. They weren't even convinced by that. They outrightly refused to come to him in faith. When Jesus told them that the work of God 
was that they believe in him. They just put him off by demanding that he prove that he's worthy of being followed. And that's after they saw him perform this incredible miracle of feeding the 5,000, or really feeding the 5,000 families. Uh, Moses uh, fed the people for 40 years in the wilderness, they claimed, uh, as they insisted that Jesus do something just as impressive as that. Uh, And Jesus, in return, he corrects their theology, pointing out that it wasn't Moses who fed the people manna, but that it was God. Uh, Jesus tried to redirect them by saying, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And of course, when Jesus said that, he is referring to himself. But the people are thinking on a purely physical level. And so their response is the same response that you would give to a waiter or somebody who serves you. Give us this bread always. But they're not talking about him. They're talking about physical bread. And that leads to the pinnacle of the conversation where Jesus notes that they have seen him and yet do not believe. They've had every reason in the world to believe in him based on what they've seen and what they've heard. And yet, they don't. But Jesus didn't despair because he knew that all whom the Father gives him would come to him. He knows that there are many, many people whom the Father had given to him and that their coming to him was not uncertain. It was certain those whom the Father gave him would come. And of course, this is the doctrine of Election or predestination. Now, the doctrine of election or, or predestination, whichever you prefer to call it, has everything to do with the, the way we view evangelism and the approach that we take to evangelism. It, it changes our approach to sharing the gospel when we understand that it is God's word that does God's work and that his word always, always accomplishes his purposes. It does not return void to him. Sometimes those purposes are to soften a sinner's heart. Sometimes those purposes are to break a heart. Sometimes those purposes are to harden a heart. But while we have the burden and responsibility of of evangelizing and preaching truthfully, And accurately, the doctrine of election removes from us the impossible burden of converting people. Only God can do that. And God will do that. That's what John chapter 6 has been teaching us. God will do that with all whom he has given to the Son. So in our passage today, we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 6, verses 41 to 47, and we're going to continue to see the way that Jesus explains this wonderful doctrine of election, and it truly is wonderful when you understand it. This doctrine which serves as the bridge between man's depravity and God's requirement that people believe. The, The bridge between man's refusal to seek God and the reality that God has decreed that the Son will receive an inheritance of people called out from among the nations, all of whom will come to the Son, will come to Christ in true saving faith. Jesus knew that this doctrine made the success of his mission, the success of his work, certain. 
that it was guaranteed. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he declared in verse 37. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He's teaching about man's need for sovereign divine grace, without which man will remain totally lost. And how do the people respond to that? How do they respond to this teaching of man's desperate, desperate need for grace? The answer is they hated it. They absolutely hated it. And word of what he had claimed, what he had said, began to spread. In our passage today, we actually see a change of location and people or, or, or audience. The previous dialogue was with the Galileans, but verse 59 tells us that the dialogue that we begin looking at today took place in the synagogue in Capernaum. Undoubtedly, the Holy Spirit put these two passages next to each other because they're, they're teaching the same thing. So word spread to the Jews about what Jesus had claimed. He claimed that he alone was the true bread come from heaven. And, that, and, and when they couldn't argue with that, when they couldn't refute his, his argument or his statement, what they start doing is attacking him. They start, they start attacking his credibility, his history, who he is as an individual. When they're unable to refute the message, their focus changes to the messenger. So we start with verses 41 and 42, where we read this. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? One of the things that is kind of apparent here, if you think about it, uh, is the fact that the Jews believed that Joseph was Jesus' natural father, which means that the virgin birth had remained hidden from them, that it was a secret. Uh, Joseph undoubtedly kept this secret under wraps as a way of protecting Mary, uh, protecting her from any false accusations. And it's, of course, a positive reflection on who Joseph was, both as a man and as a husband. Uh, Joseph knew that Jesus was conceived supernaturally. He didn't doubt the virgin birth, but he seems to have known that there would be people who would doubt and who would think less of Mary. But even if, just hypothetically, even if Jesus had been Joseph's biological son, think about it, what does that do for what Jesus said? What, what does that do for, for their need for grace? Does it refute it? Of course it doesn't. The people aren't concerned with the veracity or the truth of what Jesus has claimed, that they would need grace. They're just looking for a way. They're just looking for any way to justify their unbelief. So what do they do? They start grumbling. And that's a funny word, grumble. It's actually onomatopoetic which means that it sounds like what it is. 
Grumble, grumble, grumble. You get the idea, right? That's the sound that runs through a crowd when they're so upset with what's been said that they kind of lower their voices and they start complaining to one another. Uh, It's usually preceded by a a sharp gasp. (gasps) And what do they say to one another as they grumble? They aren't talking about whether or not Jesus' claim to be the true bread of heaven is true. Rather, what they attack is his character. They're trying to discredit his divinity. Forget the the truthfulness or the credibility of the message. They're out to destroy the credibility of the messenger. And people do that all the the time, by the way, Even, even in our day and age. When they can't argue against what you've said, they'll simply attack you for who you are, as if to say, who are you to be making this claim? And of course, the truth is, if they're going to reject what we preach, if they're going to reject what we say because you and I are less than perfect, um, you know, then they're going to reject what we say uh, because we are imperfect. We, we are flawed. We are sinners. We don't claim to be perfect. We admit we're hypocrites. We admit the standard's up here and we don't live up to it. We don't claim to be better than anybody else. But the point is that the flaws and the sins and the imperfections of you and me and whoever the messenger might be, they don't nullify the truth of the message. If it did, there'd be no preachers. There'd be nobody to evangelize because all of us fall short. And that's why the world loves to point that out. You're hypocrites. You don't live up to the, to the very standard you profess. You're right, we don't. A hypocrite wouldn't admit that, by the way. So the way that they deal with Jesus' claim to be the true bread of heaven is to attack who Jesus is and where they thought he came from. Yeah, he's, he's just a carpenter, right? He, he's a carpenter's kid. He's not real educated, or, or so they thought. Uh, you know, he's, he's Joseph and Mary's kid. He came from Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? He didn't come from heaven. So by doing this, what these people are doing, by grumbling about who Jesus is, they're revealing their pride. They're revealing their foolish, rebellious pride. And it's interesting that they would grumble and and murmur at this because do you remember what the Israelites did in the wilderness when God gave them manna from heaven in the Exodus? They grumbled. Exodus 16.2 says the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So so what does God do? He provides manna for them. Uh, What happens then in verse 17? Exodus 17 verse 3, so immediately when the next chapter begins, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why are they grumbling against Moses when they could have been going to God in prayer? Here's the thing about grumbling. It exalts yourself over God. It's really a way of saying, God, you're not giving me enough. But without addressing God. Grumble, grumble, grumble. That's the response of the people when they're confronted in the wilderness with the reality that they need God's sovereign grace and provision. And what an interesting thing to see that the same word 
And the same response can be found in both uh, the wilderness in God's response to the manna uh, and of his provision of his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true bread come down from heaven. In both cases, the people are grumbling. In both cases, the minds of the people are fixed on one thing, and that is their physical, earthly satisfaction. In the Exodus, the people weren't satisfied by the manna, so they grumbled and and demanded of Moses, give us meat. And here with Jesus, they demand, give us this bread always. Both of them are thinking purely physically. They're dissatisfied with what they have been given with what God has sovereignly provided in both cases. And interestingly, what the people are really using as their excuse for disbelief is the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. They're, they're pointing out the fact that he, he's the son of a carpenter. See, they, they understood what he was claiming. They understood. He's saying that he came down from heaven. They understood that he was claiming to be God's sovereign provision for spiritual life. But in their minds, it's a stumbling block. In their minds, Jesus was just a man. A lowly, poor one at that. And that offended their pride. It it went straight at their pride. A.W. Pink notes this. He says, quote, It was the pride of the human heart disdaining to be indebted to one who had lain aside his glory and had taken upon him the form of a servant. End quote. The idea that the son of a carpenter was God's sovereign provision, the true bread come down from heaven, it was just more than they could reason. It was a pill too big for them to swallow. They, they wouldn't dare subject themselves to the son of a lowly carpenter. And yet, what they missed is that it's the, the humanity of Christ that qualifies him to be our mediator, to be our federal head before God. They understood what Jesus was claiming, but they refused to submit themselves to him in saving faith. And this is, once again, man's fallen condition demonstrating our need for sovereign grace. Let me ask you, friends, as you consider this, as you consider their response, as you consider the fact that you have believed and they haven't, are you better than they are? Are we any wiser than they are? Are are we any less prideful by nature than they are. No. In fact, far be it from us to claim such a thing. If we truly and savingly believe, while they persisted in unbelief, in in refusing to believe, our only boast is in him who gave us grace to believe. To deny that the faith through which you have received God's saving grace uh, is of God is to assert that it was from you, which makes you better than those who don't believe, which makes you smarter than those who don't believe, which makes you wiser than those who don't believe. No. If we truly and savingly believe, our only boast is in him who gave us grace 
to believe. See, whatever we have that is good is entirely of Him. It is entirely His doing. Is it good to believe in Christ? It is. Of course it is. And yet, what does David say? Psalm 16, 2. There's no good within me. I have no good but you. The rest, the wretchedness, the wickedness, the sin, the impurity, that's what we can take credit for. And this is where Scripture just chips away at the pride of man. It assaults the self-confidence of the individual. It maims, it chops, it hacks at the overinflated self-esteem which lies at the root of each and every sin. It demonstrates that sovereign grace truly, truly is our only hope. That we are unable to help ourselves in even the least bit. And man's response to this is exactly what these people here in the text do. They grumble. Do you know that grumbling is a sin? Grumbling is a sin. It's an expression of angry covetousness. Philippians chapter 2, 14, Paul writes this. He says, do all things without grumbling. Now, when you read that, does it, does it sound like Paul is saying that this is optional? Does it sound like Paul's just giving us some, some friendly, casual advice, and, and you can either take it or leave it? Of course not. Friend, your tongue was given to you to proclaim the greatness and the glory and the excellencies of God. It was not given to you to express discontent at what God has provided or what God has declared or what God has ordained. Listen to the fuller context of what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that... Now we're talking about the result of not grumbling so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. We are lights in the world. But you know what can diminish that? According to Paul, grumbling. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? He's saying that grumbling is common to the flesh, to the world. It's, it's a work that the unregenerate does, naturally. And one of the things that should set us apart as Christians is not grumbling. Just one last thought on, on this. Do you know what grumbling will do to a church? The same thing that it will do to your marriage? Or the same thing that it will do to a friendship, be that your neighbor or your boss or whoever, it will blow it up. It will destroy a church. I have personally seen it happen. I've counseled friends who are pastors whose churches are, are on the verge of falling apart because people in the congregation are grumbling against the pastor and the elders. There is no place for grumbling in the life of the Christian. There is no place for grumbling in the life of the church. 
Listen to how Jesus deals with this. Listen to how he rebukes them for grumbling in light of his teaching that he is the true bread come down from heaven, in light of his lowly humanity. Look at verses 43 and 44 with me. We read, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Isn't it interesting to see the way that Jesus responds here? He doesn't respond the way that I think I probably would have. He doesn't respond in the way that you might think he should respond or would respond, and that is by defending himself, saying, well, you know, I might be Joseph's son, but he's not my biological dad. He doesn't say that. No, instead, he simply restates and expounds upon the truths that they are unhappy with and grumbling about. The truth that we find here in verse 44, that a person cannot come to Christ in faith unless the Father has given that person to Christ. That was stated positively back in verse 37. Now he's stating it in the negative. In verse 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The subject in that sentence was all, right? In verse 44, what's the subject? It's the same truth, but the subject is no one. So it's the same truth being stated positively in verse 37 and negatively in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now it's important to see why Jesus said it this way because if we don't take context into account, then it might kind of sound like Jesus is just slamming the door to salvation right in their faces. He's not. He's saying there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be saved. And there's only one way that people will come through the door of salvation. See, he doesn't say this to turn them away, but to humble them. That's what they need. They need to be humbled. Instead, they're grumbling. But instead of grumbling, what they should have been doing, they should have been lining up around Jesus to partake of this true bread come down from heaven. They should have been falling at His feet, begging for mercy, thanking God for sending His only Son who would bear the wrath of God against their sins in their place if they would only believe. And if they were having trouble believing, what was stopping them from saying, Jesus, I, I hear what you're saying, and I know that I must believe, but I, I don't. Help my unbelief. What's stopping them from saying that? Themselves. Their pride. Fallen man refuses to humble himself. If he could, if, if man could humble himself as he should, uh, he'd take pride even in the fact that he humbled himself. I mean, how silly is that? But that's exactly what he would do. Look at me, the, the, the uh, natural man would declare. Look at me, I, I can do for myself what God requires. But who can provide what God requires? Can man provide what God requires? No, he can't. Only God can provide what God requires. Now, some of, some of you might respond by saying, well, if the Bible instructs us to believe, 
then we must be able to believe. After all, if, if God instructs us to do that, we must be capable, right? As if, as if it must be possible if God demands it. But I want to show you that that is an absolutely absurd idea and absolutely false. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God demanded it. How's that working out for you? In fact, God gave us 613 commands in his law by which perfection is measured. How many of those have you fulfilled? We're instructed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And yet, not a single one of us has ever done that for even one second. See, the principle that this draws us to is that God's instruction for us to do something does not mean that we are actually able to do it. Rather, it's to show us that we can't. It's to show us that we are unable to do what He requires. And thus grace, blessed grace, is our only hope. If we are to do anything pleasing to God, including believing, He must both enable and empower us to do so. Now, I have no doubt that some of these people who were there and who heard these words, perhaps many, only the Lord knows, would possibly even have been present on Pentecost, where they heard Peter preach the gospel to them and were pierced to the heart, and they would ask one another, not grumble, by the way, they wouldn't grumble when when they heard Peter preach, rather they were pierced to the heart and they would ask one another, brethren, what shall we do? See the difference in response between grumbling and what the appropriate response is? And Peter's response was to say, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Catch that last part? As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter was teaching the same thing Jesus was teaching here in John 6, 44. It exposes the reason for the grumbling, and it unveils the depths of humanity's depravity, our refusal by nature to come to Christ on our own. A person must, must be drawn to Christ by the Father in order for them to come in true saving faith. The question then becomes, will all who are drawn come? And verse 37 gives us a clear answer for that. Yes. Yes, all who are given to Christ by the Father will come. Nevertheless, not everybody's convinced. Nevertheless, this has been a question that has stirred up many, many, many debates, many of which were not so friendly throughout history. As James Boyce notes, quote, This verse is so straightforward in its language that it has always been a battleground between those who are willing to accept the doctrine of election here taught by Christ and those who resist it on rational or humanistic grounds, end quote. 
One of those debates throughout history, from throughout history, was between Martin Luther and a man named Erasmus. It was the contention of Erasmus that only some of those who were drawn by the Father to Christ would come. Erasmus believed that it was within the ability of man, uh, fallen man, to turn to God. God just needed to prompt us. God needed to woo and entice us. So when dealing with Jesus' words here in John chapter 6, verse 44, Erasmus said that uh, he interpreted it to mean that God draws people to Christ in a way that might be illustrated by the way that you could get a donkey to move by uh, dangling a carrot in front of it, in front of its nose. In this view, God takes the initiative, yes, but man may or may not cooperate So clearly, Erasmus took the word draw to mean entice, or persuade, or woo. And Luther responded to this by writing his greatest theological masterpiece, a book titled The Bondage of the Will. And in this book, Luther didn't deny that man has a will which he exercises. What he denied is that we have an unrestrained free will, a will that by nature allows us to choose to do what is good, to sin or to not sin. And he argued, Luther argued convincingly, that the human will is in bondage to sin, that we are like slaves on a leash being held by sin, restrained by sin. And that leash prevents us from doing what is good. It restrains us. If you've ever seen a dog on a leash go go racing to the end of the leash and you, you hit the end of it, they can't go any further. That's kind of the idea that Luther was giving there of what sin does to us. It keeps us on a leash. It restrains and restricts how far we can go, what we're capable of doing by nature. And Luther's arguments against Erasmus were brilliant. Uh, He he noted the fact that not a single one of these 20,000 people, nor the people who witnessed uh, the, the, the miracle in, in John chapter 5 of healing the crippled man. Not a single person believed. What could possibly be more enticing? What could possibly be a, a sweeter carrot, to use Erasmus's uh, illustration? What could possibly be a sweeter carrot than Christ? He was with them in their midst. They could see the compassion in his eyes. They could hear the compassion and the love in his voice. He taught them. He performed a miracle for them, miracles for them. Isn't that better incentive than a carrot for a donkey? Of course it is. And yet, what was their response? They didn't believe. Could we be in a better, a more enticing, a more wooing situation than those people? Nope. We couldn't. They didn't believe. Even with that incentive of having Christ right there with them. Instead, what did they end up doing? Killing him. Killing him. So Luther concluded... 
quote, the ungodly does not come even when he hears the word, unless the Father draws and teaches him inwardly, which he does by shedding abroad his spirit. When that happens, there follows a drawing other than that which is outward. Christ is then displayed by the enlightening of the spirit, and by it man is wrapped to Christ with the sweetest rapture, he being passive while God speaks, teaches, and draws, rather than seeking or running himself. End quote. Now the key word there is, is passive, which is the only way that a man can be saved. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now when you were born physically the first time, how cooperative were you in that process? What did you do to contribute to that? Nothing. You were passive. If, if somebody gets raised to life from death, which would they be, passive or active? Passive. Entirely passive. It's something that they don't participate in. It's something that must be done to them. But if we understand the way that the Greek word that gets translated draws is used, it's actually a little bit worse than Luther understood. Because we aren't just passive. I, I, mean, I, I suppose in one sense we are, because regeneration is something that must be done to us, and we play no role in it. But in another sense, we actively resist the grace that God offers us. The Greek word that John uses here, which gets translated draws, is helkuso. Helkuso. We find that same word used in various contexts through the New Testament. Uh, one of those uh, places that we find that word used is in John 21 in reference to the action of the disciples as they dragged their nets that were filled with fish to the shore. Do you suppose that they were trying to woo or convince those nets filled with fish to come into shore? No, that's, that's not going to do anything, right? No, there's a great force that must be used. It's also found in John 18, 18, where Peter drew his sword. Do you get the idea that Peter was trying to woo or persuade his sword to come out of this sheath? Of course not. Or do you get the idea that he took it out by force? Acts chapter 16, verse 19, we find the same word used again when Paul and Silas are dragged before the authorities. Do you get the idea that the Roman authorities who did so were trying to entice or woo Paul and Silas to come? No, we, we, we know that that is not how the Romans did things, right? See, every time this word is used, it's not talking about enticing or, or wooing. Every time this word is used, it's not only talking about a very forceful action, but there is also the idea of resistance. Resistance that is overcome by a greater, more powerful operation. And that reveals the true nature of the heart of man, doesn't it? By nature, man will not turn to Christ in cooperation with the work of God unless he is overcome by God's inward call. We would resist it to our last breath by nature. Only the power of God 
can prevail against it. That power which works to change a man's nature, to change his affections, to change the things that he desires for, to change the things that he loves, to change the things that he hates, to convict him of sin and turn his eyes to Christ. Now this doesn't mean that we're robots, by the way. I mean, that's the argument, right? That if God works to overcome our our will, we must be like robots. Uh, No, this doesn't mean that a person is a robot. It doesn't mean that anybody goes uh, to heaven kicking and screaming against their will. Uh, There are no instances of conversion in the Bible that even remotely resemble that. No, we don't believe that that is how it works. Instead, what the Bible teaches is that God draws people to Christ by first changing their hearts, cutting the leash that sin has used to restrain us, setting us free from the power of sin in order that we may behold the glory of Christ and believe. This is all of grace. And this is what God does for all who have been given to Christ by the Father. Now Jesus elaborates a little bit in verse, verses 45 and 46. Let's look at those verses. Verses 45 and 46 say, uh, Jesus continues saying, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. This verse, especially verse 45, seems to be referring to the promise of the new covenant. We read in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, God says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. That's the promise of the new covenant. And you get the idea there that God is the one who's active. And man, in that context, is passive. I will put my law within them. I will write it. See, verse 45 here in John, it answers Erasmus' objection that some people might be drawn and yet not come. Right? Jesus doesn't leave that, uh, that possibility open at all. What does he say? Look at verse 45. He says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Are there any exceptions? Are there any who would hear and learn from God and not come? Nope. He says, everyone. Everyone. All of them. Think back to Peter's profession of faith. How did he know? When when Jesus said, who who do you say I am? And and Peter knows who he was. How, How did he know that Jesus was the Son of God? Jesus explains it for us. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is referring there to what we would call the effectual call of God. See, there's an outward call 
of the gospel. That, that, gets, uh, that goes out to everyone. We're supposed to preach the gospel to everyone with, without any uh, prejudice or distinction. We preach it to absolutely everyone. But unless a person is inwardly called by God, the outward call falls on spiritually deaf ears, even if Jesus is the one who's preaching. That's what we see here in John chapter 6. Matthew's testimony illustrates this. Consider Matthew's story. He was a tax collector in Capernaum, uh, which is where Jesus is in this passage, by the way. Uh, But that's a place where he probably heard Jesus preach the gospel many times because Jesus came to Capernaum preaching the gospel many times before he called Matthew. So Matthew probably heard it many times. That's the outward call, the general call that goes out to everyone. And yet he remained seated in his tax booth until... Jesus came up to him and said, follow me. And at that point, Matthew left everything behind to follow Jesus. That was the inward call, the inward effectual calling given by God. The outward call is powerless to save apart from the inward effectual calling of God, even if Jesus is the one preaching. All who are taught by God, everyone who hears his voice and learns from him comes to Christ. How do they hear him? If we want somebody to hear the voice of God and to come to Christ, how does that happen? We must preach to them. We must share the gospel with them. Knowing that those whom God has given life to will believe. Let's look at John uh, 6.47. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Has eternal life. Not will get eternal life. So so once again, this, this is worded in a way that helps us understand how salvation works. It demonstrates for us that we must be regenerated before we believe. We must have ears to hear before we hear. Or as R.C. Sproul would have put it, regeneration precedes faith. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great preacher of the 20th century. He illustrated this principle like this. Picture a battlefield. Across this battlefield, there is an army that is advancing when suddenly heavy fire, heavy artillery from the enemy starts coming at them. And so their response is to immediately fall to the ground and hold position. And let's, let's assume, just for the sake of the illustration, that each one of the soldiers was either dead or alive and unwounded. So once the fire from the enemy ceases, the command comes to get up and to charge across the field. Who gets up and starts charging across the field? Only the ones who are living. The ones that do not get up are dead and cannot hear or obey the order. For those who get up and charge across the field, are are they alive because they got up and charged across the field? No, it's the other way around. They, They got up and they followed the orders because they were living. In the same way, those who believe in Christ do so because God has already granted them life. He's granted them 
a new heart. He's given them eyes to see and ears to hear. He's given them an awareness of their hopelessness and their need for redemption. And with these ears to hear, when they hear the gospel, it is the sweetest, sweetest sound. And so they come to Christ, and it is both within their will and their nature to do so. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a great poet. He once said, quote, The only person you are destined to become is the person you decide to be. End quote. That is a pagan, humanistic statement. And I am so, so thankful that it is not true for those who are effectually called to Christ. Because Scripture reveals that every inclination of, of my heart and yours by nature would be not only to, to not participate, but to actively resist coming to Christ. If you have believed in Christ, it is God's doing. If you have never believed in Christ, you must understand, you must see that grace is your only hope. God's grace is the one thing that you need more than anything. And so if God is speaking to your heart, making you aware of your need for Christ, then come to Him in faith. He will never turn you away. If you desire Christ, if you desire forgiveness, friend, it is because God has drawn you to Christ. So don't wait. When we understand man's natural condition, it changes how we do evangelism, doesn't it? If we believe that man can freely come to Christ or not, then it's a waste of time to pray for that person to believe because God wouldn't overcome their, their, their free will, right? We'd be better off taking classes or reading books on how to persuade people. Uh, there are some great sales books on the subject. But if we believe, if we, if we truly realize that only God can call and speak to the heart of a loved one or a neighbor or a family member or, or a co-worker who's lost, then we would be very, very wise to spend time in what you would call evangelistic prayer. And then in going to them and evangelizing. See, when we understand this, the doctrine of election shouldn't cause us to despair or to grow discouraged. Rather, it should be encouraging to us because Jesus knew that his mission was guaranteed to be successful. That's why he didn't despair. He knew that the Father would draw countless multitudes to him from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And he knew that the word of God never ever returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose that God intends. So, let us never say of anyone, anyone, so-and-so can't be saved. This person is beyond even God's hope. Instead, let us persist 
in sharing the gospel, pointing the lost to Christ, never giving up on anyone, knowing that all who hear and are taught by God will come to Christ in true saving faith. Let's pray. Our gracious, merciful God, we confess to you that we are sinners and that your word is clear. Apart from your grace, we are completely lost. If we do not hear or learn from the Father, we are lost. And so we thank you that you have given us new, new life, new nature, a nature that would desire you, a nature that would love you. Thank you for drawing us to Christ, overcoming our resistance by nature. Thank you for loving us so much that you would not leave us in our natural condition. It is our prayer, Father, that many would come to Christ. It is our prayer that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us courage and confidence preach and teach the gospel, knowing that our efforts are in vain if none of this is true. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that you call someone and you draw people to Christ. Thank you for that. It reminds us that our work is never in vain, that your word always accomplishes its purposes. And so, we ask for opportunities to share your word, to preach the gospel, to proclaim the glory of Christ as lights in this dark and fallen world. All for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.